Pediatric care is a core part of the healthcare system in any community, including in rural America. But caring for kids in a rural community poses unique challenges and requires a tailored approach to ensure the health and well-being of young patients. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 94 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Chief Communications Officer. Now, Rachel, we have discussed a variety of topics related directly uh, to the care of rural Americans. Uh, But today we are focused on a special population for the very first time, children. That's right. We are talking with someone who has been caring for the youngest patients in our community for many years now. Our guest today is Dr. Nicole Ellis, pediatrician at the Pediatric Place in Hillsdale, and she's also our chief of medical staff for Hillsdale Hospital. Welcome to Rural Health Rising, Dr. Ellis. Thank you. So to start, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your work here in Hillsdale? I'm a pediatrician, and I have been working in Hillsdale for now um, just over 12 years, Um, and... I love it. I love Hillsdale. I loved Hillsdale from probably the first time I laid eyes on it. And by two days, 48 hours, I knew I needed to change the direction of my career so that I could stay here Mm -hmm. forever. And originally, so where did you come from originally when you came to visit Hillsdale? Because you were not anywhere near here, right? No, I was in Chicago. And um, a a fellow um, colleague now, had students come to study in Hillsdale. Okay. And I was selected as part of that group to come from Chicago. Okay. So that's how you ever set foot in Hillsdale. That's right. And then the stars aligned. Yes. I was interested in family practice emergency medicine, and I wanted to come and get a great pediatric rotation in, and I came here, loved it, (laughs) decided to change my career path to pediatrics, which was a bit of a a scramble, but worked out perfectly and told my boyfriend at the time, you should come and visit because (laughs) if you want to be where I am, this is where I'll be. (laughs) You should make sure you like it. And he did too. He was from a small, small community growing up and Mm -hmm. we just loved every bit of it. And did you open your own practice then or you started with another physician? No, I started with Dr. Herbner who had been practicing for some 30, almost 40 years at the time. Oh, wow. And then he took me under his wing and Mm -hmm. mentored me, and then I took over from there. Okay. So tell me a little bit about that experience of not originally thinking you were going to do pediatrics as your primary specialty. What When you did your pediatric rotation here, what made you fall in love with pediatrics, not just Hillsdale, but with pediatrics so much that you would kind of change that career path? I always liked working with children, and I thought that I would have enough opportunity to work with children in family practice or emergency medicine. But when I got the opportunity to work solely with children, it just opened my eyes to how incredibly rewarding it is. Um, The children in general are innocent of their disease processes. So no matter what's going on, you know, whether they're from, you know, they have difficulty from a social aspect, they're not buying their food, they're not, you know, right. um, if they're non-compliant with their medicines or they don't take their medicines right. because an adult didn't give it to them. And it's 
it's just great. Plus, you know, they're fun and funny and, and you can make great jokes. All get out. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So they're growing and and when they're bigger um, and older, they're growing into who they're going to become. And that's so exciting to be a part of that process and to see that. And um, I think my biggest struggle is transitioning to an adult doctor because by the time <laughs> They get older. I've really loved walking beside them, and I miss mm -hmm. them. And mm -hmm. so, and I like seeing who they've become and what they're interested in, and how they're taking their lives, or if they're going to become parents themselves. Like looking mm -hmm. at that. So that's the the nice thing is now that I've been practicing long enough, I've had the um, honor of taking care of patients, and then they bring their kids to me, which I think is probably the the greatest honor is. <laughs> And a massive compliment, too. Yes, yes. That's, um, well, and yeah. I really feel like nobody forgets their pediatrician, right? Like everybody, <laughs> people will not remember every single doctor they've ever seen in their life, but they will never forget their pediatrician's name. Yes. You know? That's just such an important role, I think, in people's life. So now that we've established who you are and what you do, a remarkable journey that it has been for you and a wonderful career that you have to work with children, uh, we always start with why. And we do this on every episode, so we get to know our guests just a little bit better. So what is your why? What motivates you? What gets you up out of bed in the morning? I think a fulfilled life means that you have meaning to your work mm. and you meaning to your work that you make a difference and that you love someone. Um, and that's um, why I do what I do. Um, I find meaning in the work that I do. Um, even on hard days, I feel like um, I've helped someone. Sometimes mm -hmm. our, our joke in the office is when we've had a very busy day, <laughs> we say, whoo, helped a lot of people today. <laughs> <laughs> I love but, that. That's but, a great way to put yeah, it. Yeah. But if I can make someone stay a little bit better, especially if they're feeling sick, then then that was worth it to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, Dr. Ellis, let's talk specifically about your experience um, you know, settling on a practice in a rural community and with kids in particular. We talked about this a little bit initially, but what was that time like when you, so you visited for 48 hours. Mm -hmm. What did you do in those 48 hours that you really saw? Like, do you remember what really um, drew you into I think Hillsdale? It was the sense of community, the, the sense of um, you could tell that people cared for one another. You could tell that there was connections that far exceeded um, just regular neighbors. Mm -hmm. There was a sense of responsibility to oh. not only mm -hmm. yourself and your family, but your neighbor's family and the other people that you go to school with and the people that you work with. And that, that sense of responsibility to community was really incredible. And I think that that would be the first thing that drew me Mm -hmm. um, to mm -hmm. the community. And had you lived in rural communities previously in your life or had you been in more suburban urban areas? Was that new to you entirely or just new to you in the process of thinking of where you could build your life? So when my um, husband and I were talking about this, we had made mention that we wanted to raise children and our family with a sense of community. Mm -hmm. And we felt that the two places that were easiest to do that were in a very big city mm -hmm. or a very small town. Yeah. It's important that not everybody comes from the same background that mm -hmm. you do. 
that not all of the houses look the same. Mm-hmm. Not everybody has the same car. And I think that that is a more difficult lesson to learn when you maybe live in a big suburb mm-hmm. setting and everybody kind of has the same things to kind mm-hmm. of see life outside of that and to see life outside of that responsibility. Um, and we felt like Hillsdale had that up until that point. I think we were looking at Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> but we had lived in the time in Chicago. I'd grown up in Milwaukee. But I went to undergrad in Kirksville, Missouri, which is a town very small and very similar in size to Hillsdale. Mm-hmm. So I was aware of that. My husband grew up in a very small town, so he knew what he was getting mm-hmm. into as well. So you both kind of had some level of understanding and expectation of what it's like to be fully engaged in a rural community. Exactly. And the responsibility, right? You don't right. just get to sit back. Like, if mm-hmm. you're going to be a part of this and you want your community to thrive, then you have mm-hmm. to roll up your sleeves and you you dig in and you do the hard work of supporting your small community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you switched from family medicine to pediatrics, was there something that made you realize, I can live without ever taking care of adults? You know, <laughs> like whatever you're, what, what you were passionate about or interested in before, as that shifted and focused more on children, what do you think was that tipping point for you to say, yep, this I'm definitely going to make this change? Or were you kind of like, I don't know, let's see what happens? I don't know. I think one of the things that drew me to family practice was this idea of growing with people. And mm-hmm. that was a sacrifice that I had to really come to grips with that that I would not necessarily get to grow old with patients over decades. That right. It wouldn't my be cradle time to would grave be, Exactly, medicine. exactly. And I think that's really something very special about family practice mm-hmm. that I miss out on. And so it was something that I had to, granted it was 48 hours, but something that was the biggest um, hurdle or barrier for me to make that switch mm-hmm. over. Mm-hmm. So how would you say that your practice is unique compared to pediatric practices in urban and suburban communities? Because rural is, you know, we know rural medicine and rural healthcare is not the same as suburban healthcare, which is mm-hmm. not the same as urban healthcare. So what do you think makes your practice unique and what you experience, what you see, how you care for patients? I think that it's important because we live within the community that we serve. Mm. And I think that's something that you may not get in a big urban setting or suburban right. setting. So there's that. I think that being integrated in the community you serve is very important. That's not necessarily pediatric driven, but um, rural healthcare driven. Mm-hmm. And I think it's an important part of how we give medical care and why I feel that the care that we give is so important mm-hmm. and why, while I am biased, why I think rural healthcare, our community-based healthcare is so much better than big right. settings for for a majority of the things that you could be treated because it's important to have people that that are caring for you be invested in you mm-hmm. and i think that that happens or is easier to do when you really truly know the people that you're serving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're able to be much closer to your patients in a multitude of ways i would think and their families. Exactly. And- Social determinant of health uh, is becoming more and more central to providing health care. How do you incorporate an understanding of this principle with your patients? And um, how does it impact the care that you provide specifically? There's a lot of things that you can do or just understand, be aware of what's going on in your community. Even recently, um, you know, depending on when this podcast airs, we've recently just overcome a pretty significant 
ice storm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so knowing that, reaching out to to families, letting them know where there's warming centers, letting them know where they can go for resources during acute um, bad weather or, right. or um, triggers sort of our community catastrophic troubles. Right? Exactly. Whether it's a financial catastrophic event or you know mm-hmm. that families are on hard times, um, weather-related, you know, catastrophes, everybody's kind of in it together. And you can see that we're really kind of coming together to help fellow families. And I think that's a big part of that, um, being aware of the community resources that you have, whether it's Love Inc. or the Family Center or, you know, the free clinics, you know, all these different areas that you know and have good working relationships so that you can kind of utilize those resources really well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that helps too. And then again, being aware and so that you can ask those right questions um, mm-hmm. because you're in that same same community. Do do social determinants of health impact, for example, what type of medication you might prescribe to a patient or what types of step therapies you might try before you get to a certain thing? Because, you know, I think you mentioned noncompliance earlier, right? <laughs> and with kids, it's different because they're not the one who's ultimately responsible. Um, but there's also some conversation in healthcare right now, too, of like, what does noncompliance really mean? Mm-hmm. And what is the, is there intention behind it? Or is it a social determinants of health issue? Because it could yes. be one or the other, right? So or how both. do you, yeah. So how does that impact the way that you actually treat your patients? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, recently we had shortages of medicines. There's supply chain issues. Mm. There's, you know, you have what you would love to be able to provide in the most ideal situations. And then you have what you have access to. And if you don't have access, it doesn't matter to be like, it's amoxicillin or nothing. Well, no, that's not appropriate. Your your patient needs treating. Um, You know, and so whether it's talking parents through how to create their own suspensions out of, you know, capsules or Mm -hmm. how to make adjustments in the antibiotics that you prescribe based on, you know, what's happening in one given time, calling multiple pharmacies, finding out what's available, you know, that's Mm -hmm. a big part of that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think the other thing, too, is making sure, you know, following up, were you able to pick up that medication? Mm -hmm. You know, so we do um, care management in our office, which um, has someone that's specifically trained to make follow-up phone calls. Mm -hmm. Were you able to pick up your medicine? Well, no. Well, why why was that? What what was, you know, what was that barrier? Mm-hmm. Well, it was $200. Oh, my goodness. Dr. Ellis would never prescribe a medicine right. that cost $200 if she didn't know. Something must have changed with the insurance or right. the coverage. Let us make, let's make that change. Right. Let's find an alternative for you. Right. So you're even, before you're prescribing things, you're taking the cost of that medication into account and Most whether the insurance definitely. covers it at all. Oh, yes, definitely. Definitely. Because, again, there's not, it's not feasible. Most, I mean, I don't know very many people that just have an extra you know, hundred or two hundred dollars a month right. just laying around that they can, ha- you know, medications. There's a lot mm-hmm. that goes into that, and so making sure that people don't have to make those choices that we can find alternatives. But you have to know to ask those questions. Right, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know just recently we had to get some medication for my son, and the pharmacy did not have our updated insurance information. So they they called and were like, "Hey, we need your updated insurance information." But I could see in you know my little patient app or whatever. Mm-hmm how much it was going to cost because they didn't have the insurance yes. in there yet. And I was like, oh, hang on, what? Yeah, you yes, know, right. I was just like, this This is like not feasible, Yeah, you know? Um, and then I also thought to myself, 
I'm in a position where I could probably make it work, but a lot of people are not. Mm -hmm. And it makes you kind of think about like, there's so much to this process of taking care of your patients and Mm -hmm. understanding where they are in their life and that kind of thing. Fortunately, then when the insurance was run, it was like, oh, okay, that's like totally normal. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And totally doable. Um, But it does, it can make a huge difference. Or that they miss an appointment. Well, and they're not missing an appointment to be rude or or mean Mm -hmm. or because they don't understand, you know, the concepts of time or what the schedule looks like. They may not have gas money. And so like that part is important to know Mm -hmm. and like looking up what resources are available for whether or not they're coming to see you or going to um, a specialist. Mm -hmm. All those things need to be taken account because if your true goal is to making sure that you're helping people, all of that has an impact in how you're helping people. Let's talk a little bit about the care that you provide in the birthing center because you're seeing the brand new little sweet little squishy precious little babies Mm -hmm. right after they're born um so what has your experience been with that here in a rural community obviously our birthing center is amazing we know that it is but i do i love it verifiably we are platinum (laughs) designated by the michigan alliance for innovation on maternal health (laughs) that's wonderful um and not something that's done easily that's the work of amazing nursing and support staff Mm -hmm. and physicians that help make that unit run um and so that that is a lot of hard work that goes into that so that's pretty incredible to be um honored in that way i I do love seeing the babies um, that come through. I do feel that we can look within our community and know that having resources and good prenatal care is something that some families are struggling with. And mm-hmm. we see the effects of that sometimes in the nursery mm-hmm. with babies that are have a little bit of trouble coming out, you know, mm-hmm. with struggling with, you know, early potential infections or trouble mm-hmm. breathing. So we are seeing some of that as well. Um, So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think working towards our goal would be to offer even better, more robust or or multifaceted um, support for Mm -hmm. um, women um, in pregnancy so that Mm -hmm. they can get all of the care that they need, the nutrition that they need, um, the guidance that they need so that we can kind of make these babies as healthy as Mm -hmm. possible. Mm -hmm. And you're not, you know, they're in the delivery room typically, Right. Sometimes. Sometimes you are. Sometimes. Yep. Because what I have heard from other people um, in our birthing center is that our nurses see so much compared to what you might see in Mm -hmm. an urban or suburban hospital where they might say, oh, we're going to have a couple NICU nurses in here before Mm -hmm. this baby comes out. Whereas here at our birthing center, our all of our OB nurses are like, oh, yeah, we can handle that. Oh, yeah. You know, because they see everything. What is that dynamic like? That's incredible. And that's something that we work really hard on. So um, we run, I'm also the um, neonatal resuscitation provider instructor. Mm -hmm. And so that means that um, pretty much every month we run through classes so that we can be our very best at practicing the most up-to-date in neonatal resuscitation Mm -hmm. procedures and how we do that. And so I would love to believe, and I think that we are, um, a well-oiled machine when it comes Mm -hmm. to that. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of things that we do that are just seamless because we practice every month going through that. And what does it look like? How do we run this this difficulty or, Mm -hmm. you know, and Mm -hmm. so. And you guys are using some pretty advanced technology to do that, right? We are. We are. We have a pretty incredible um, baby that we use that's a simulated baby that is connected to 
a whole computer system that the assimilated baby will move and um, cries and has a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. And so we have real-time feedback so that we can be our very best. That's an incredible device that we have as um, was gifted to us by County National Bank, which is pretty incredible because this is a device that most big cities don't have and and we have here. here. And my argument was that this is even more important for us to have because there's a lot of things that we may not have the intention of keeping a baby that has high needs, but we certainly have to stabilize and keep that baby and give that baby everything that they need. And keep them safe until they can get to a higher level of care. Exactly. And so we're still providing that same care, but in a smaller setting with less resources. So Mm -hmm. having training devices like that has meant the world Mm -hmm. to what we're able to achieve. Mm Mm-hmm. And the community support for that, like you said, yes. with the County National Bank, which is a um, financial institution here in Hillsdale, um, did pay for the cost of that entirely yes, for incredible. us, which was an amazing incredible. Gift. So what is your biggest challenge caring for your specific patient population and how do you overcome that challenge? Or maybe it's a set of challenges. And how do you manage that as a provider and also as, you know, an employer, because you also are running an independent practice. So Mm -hmm. you have your team and, you know, there's more to it for you than just Mm -hmm. seeing the patients every day. Yeah. So I rely on my network of specialists that I can kind of call and help Mm -hmm. with. I think one of the things that's difficult in rural medicine, but especially pediatric rural medicine, is that subspecialists for peds are even more difficult to come by than Mm -hmm. subspecialists for adults. So I have to rely on phone calls and and finding those specialists that are willing to kind of talk to me over the telephone. Mm-hmm. I have to be willing to do a lot on my own and not just be like, oh, well, I hear this murmur. Why don't we just have you walk down the hallway and see the cardiologist right. and we'll get you right in. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. That's an hour and a half drive mm-hmm. and the appointment time takes a little longer and, mm-hmm. you know, accessibility is a little bit more difficult. So in that sense, sometimes it feels a little isolating. I've kind of over the last um, more than a decade kind of come to rely on different subspecialists and know that I can kind of call and be like, hey, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I want to do. And most of the time they're very supportive. Be like, oh, yeah, you're on the right track or this mm-hmm. is what you you can do. And this is this is working well for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'd be like, oh, yeah, that you're right. This does need us to see them. Let's get them a sooner appointment. Right. Right. And so that helps, too. Can you talk a little bit about the quality initiatives that you guys have? Because I think when you were on Facebook Live with us, mm-hmm. you we were talking about that a little bit. And yeah. I think you'd maybe just started a project or finished a project. But tell me a little bit about that, because I think that's kind of unique for mm. a pediatric practice to do some of what you guys are doing when it comes to quality initiatives. Yeah. So we actually just recently were honored by Blue Cross Blue Shield for our quality, which is pretty exciting. That's amazing. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and. There's a couple of things that because we could design, we've renovated a building so that we have a new office recently within the last two and a half, three years. And we created the whole office based on this concept of being um, a collaborative type approach. So Mm -hmm. it's not just me in the office. Um, I'm not a one woman show. Mm -hmm. I have amazing um, um, colleagues that I work with and we work together and kind of brainstorm on 
nearly every patient so that we kind of all have a say and input on what's being done for all of our patients. And I think that is a big part of that, of our success. Mm -hmm. The other big um, part of our success is that because we're small and independent, we can kind of ask questions and come up with our own answers to things that we feel aren't working well in medicine. Mm -hmm. So there's a big push to kind of really focus on BMI and weight loss in patients and um, and children. And while I do understand that there are diseases that are associated with an elevated BMI, I do not believe a BMI alone causes disease. Right. And so I think that well, our— Well, and that as a metric has been called into question more in recent years, yes, hasn't it? Yes, it has. And so, so especially for—because when it was developed, there were no children as part of the— the study that created the BMI as a metric in the first place. So I imagine exactly. that is really difficult to manage, you know, what, what other kind of factors would you look at for something like that? Yeah. So what we hope to achieve and what we like to study is what actually matters for health mm-hmm. and that are they eating well? Do they have access to good food? Do they know what good food is? Uh, a potato is probably a pretty decent food. Mm-hmm. French fries are not, you know, and does that mean that French fries are bad? No, but French fries in moderation. And what right. does that look like? We know well, There are certain things that we know, like screen time mm-hmm. uh, and the amount of screen time that kids have, whether it's the television or electronics, tablets, iPads, iPhones, smartphones, computers, all of those, the more time that you have on screen time past 20 minutes exponentially increases your risk of obesity, exponentially increases your risk of ADHD. So there's a specific time threshold within one setting. Within one setting. The more time, the more you average per week of screen time for children, the more behavioral issues you see, the more obesity, the more disease processes you see. Because mm-hmm. they're, when you're looking at that, you're like, oh, it's not so bad. But when you actually look at it, that time is being sp- spent where it could you could be doing things that are potentially healthier. While it may be right. neutral in and of itself, if it then has sucked into your time of being outside in nature, walking, running, right. doing an activity, reading a book, learning something new. It's the opportunity cost of the time that you're spending. Exactly, exactly. And that's why it has such a negative impact on children. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. so I think I interrupted you before about the, the BMI thing, but you were talking about how, like, you know, there's a big focus on that. Yes. And I think you were talking about how y'all are able to ask more questions and take different mm-hmm. approaches. So exactly. do you want to talk about that a little more since I kind of <laughs> took us on a rabbit trail there? But. That's okay. So, yeah, we kind of just want to f- focus on pillars of health. Like what do mm. what do healthy, what does health look like? Yeah. And some of that's screen time. And some of that's the type of foods that we eat. Some of that mm-hmm. is making sure that we're drinking more water and less or no soda or juice. Mm-hmm. Um that is making sure that we're getting quality sleep at night, mm-hmm. that we're being active in whatever way active means for you. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean that, you know, everybody has to be runners and runners are great. I hate running, but Same. other people love it. <laughs> so, you know, whatever that activity is for you, right. if it's taekwondo or swimming or playing a sport or just playing outside for fun, you know, mm-hmm. how important that is for kids and for everyone. And so our focus um, we've determined will be on things that we feel matter mm-hmm. for for health and those pillars and not a number 
right. or a calculation or a number on a scale or mm-hmm. a BMI, but things that actually matter to m- make you not only healthy right now, but make a healthier adult. Right. That Learning will, those those skills. Yeah, that will impact their health and their development, which will impact their health. And exactly. Not just, it's kind of, I kind of think of it like, you know, are you teaching to the test or yes. are you teaching the like, whole child? And it sounds like that's really... Your approach is looking at the whole child. I hope so. (laughs) All of that. What about, um, I think I've heard you talk before a little bit about the the entire family and the household is kind of an important part of the way that you provide care to your patients. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, looking at um, knowing that if Susie has strep, then Mm -hmm. (laughs) the likelihood that Sam and Kevin will too, then is, you know, higher. I mean, there's always that part of it. Um, but also like incorporating siblings into activities. Um, you know, if you have a younger one that's having trouble with reading or speaking, mm-hmm. incorporating siblings to be like, hey, you have just learned how to read. And while you may not be able to read, you know, War and Peace, you can <laughs> read a board book to your sibling. Right. And that's really important to help them kind of gain that. So you incorporate kids into the well-being of their siblings, you sent, you create that sense of responsibility mm-hmm. and you kind of build those family bonds. That's really important too. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my favorite thing. And <laughs> yeah. like, oh, go on a walk with your, your, your sister to ask them, ask them about their day. Or, mm-hmm. you know, this is something that I'm going to need you to model for younger siblings because they're watching. And so yeah. I need you to help with that and why that role is important. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a lot about the kids. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about the parents? Because that's a huge part, obviously, mm-hmm. of providing care to children is working with their parents. So mm-hmm. what are some of the, um, you know, in your experience, some of the most important things to know or to keep in mind in order to build trusting relationships with parents of the children in your practice? Yeah, that's a big part of what we do as what we call a patient-centered medical home. Mm-hmm. And I explain to parents that you know, from the get-go and often (laughs) that um, I will never know their child as well as they do. Yeah. And this works well because we work together as a team. Mm. And if we're not Mm -hmm. working together as a team, then what suffers is the child's health. And that's neither of us want that. And so that the approach always has to be, what are we doing together Mm-hmm. Um, and how are we working together as a team to make sure we're doing the best approach so that mm-hmm. we can optimize that? And so if there's, you know, a lot of that has to do with keeping an environment where communication is open, mm-hmm. where that a parent can always feel comfortable and not threatened to communicate mm-hmm. needs, wants, desires, goals for their child's health or their family's health, um, that they're not shut down or made to feel silly. Mm-hmm. I've yet to get a silly question. You remember, like, this may be a silly question, but I've not yet heard an actual silly question. Yeah, Most of them right. are really insightful. Um, and And so I think creating an environment where parents feel comfortable um, and validated asking those questions mm-hmm. um, to know that they have insight. You know, I tell especially new parents, you've got this internal guide within you that lets you know that something is wrong. Mm-hmm. I need you to listen to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so please listen to that. If something tells you that something is wrong, it's worthwhile to check your child over. Right. So call right. the office, bring them in, you know, mm-hmm. as, and then, you know, we kind of transition that to kids, you know, as they get older, 
I make sure that kids know that you can ask questions. You should always right. be able to ask me why. Why am I putting something in the computer? Why am I examining this part of your body? Or why mm -hmm. am I doing this part of the exam? If I can't answer why, I shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. And that goes not right. only for me, but for all providers. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so I always feel that they have the opportunity to grow with me, mm -hmm. learn that autonomy, and be their own best advocates for health. And that mm -hmm. makes them healthy not only during childhood, but in adulthood, too. Because mm -hmm. they've had years of practicing, years of explaining. As soon as they're old enough to explain their own symptoms... I try to get them to be a part of that, mm -hmm. you know, just so that they feel like they're in control. Mm -hmm. And that helps. Mm -hmm. I think that helps a great deal. You know, when you're building these relationships, you get this most amazing stories and you get to see kids that get excited about seeing you and that makes your heart mm -hmm. happy. And I've had um, a parent tell me that their family plays doctor and then they also play Dr. Ellis. And that the two <laughs> games are different. Are and they? The, the difference is, is that Dr. Ellis is played with high heels and a boa. <laughs> <laughs> that and, is so funny. And I love that it takes me forever to get through the fair because mm -hmm. I get so many wonderful hugs and because yes. I want to show me their exhibit or their animals. Mm -hmm. And I just I love it all. I love this community. I love what I do. Well, Dr. Ellis, once again, we want to thank you for joining us today. And before we close, we love to do a fun segment with each of our guests. We want to know, Dr. Ellis, what is your most unique rural experience or one of your favorite memories that is unique to rural life? I have a fun story where um, I had a patient whose baby doll was injured gravely. Oh, my goodness. By the family pet. Uh-oh. And I sutured the leg up. Did you really? <laughs> I, I did. Oh, my gosh. I did. Um, I and love it. made her all better, at least for a short while, until I think that um, that family pet undid my work. <laughs> 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 and needed more advanced um, treatment. Than could be provided. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but that was pretty cool. Yeah. That is too fun. I love it. Well, thank you again for joining us today. Mm -hmm. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest, so be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guest, Dr. Nicole Ellis, pediatrician at the Pediatric Place in Hillsdale and Chief of Medical Staff for Hillsdale Hospital. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit RuralHealthRising.com.